Okay, so we are continuing on our year-long journey of gratitude. Just like I did for the last couple of episodes, this episode, I am grateful for this podcast review from Liz SLP to be. She calls it an amazing podcast. First Bite is always part of my week. I always learn something that I can use in therapy the next day as a graduate clinician. I'm a better future SLP because of this podcast. And folks, that's kind of the perfect segue for what we're talking about in this episode today. We're talking about how to have a healthy clinical fellowship. So if you're a SLP to be, thank you for joining us and thanks y'all for sharing in this year-long gratitude journey with Pack Dawson. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson. MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation. So there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCCSLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant, who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels, and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Folks, we are back, and I have to go ahead and give a full disclosure warning right out the gate because I know it's January, but you know we record a little early, and there is a tiny tot in the background who's definitely overcoming the flu. So if there's spontaneous vomiting noises that they didn't edit out in the process of this, you have been forewarned because working mom problems, but happy 2023, (laughs) y'all. Okay, so there it is. Okay. This is like really full circle because today's guest was once upon a time my graduate student and once upon a time Aaron's intern. And it's just really kind of cool to see the circle of life. This is why we are clinical supervisors. Today is why 
we pay it forward because it is not enough just for us to treat our patients. That is huge and monumental, but we also have to pour into and put forth the next generation of clinicians that are going to lead with grace and compassion because if we don't, our field's not going to make it. That's just kind of my humble, unsolicited opinion on that. So I get to introduce none other than who I knew as Sarah Greer Thompson, but she went and got herself hitched. So now <laughs> it's not, please know you're still on my yeah. cell phone as Sarah Greer Thompson. <laughs> she's not. She's Sarah Greer Thompson Bloomfield. Am I saying his last name right? Brumfield, but good try. <laughs> I always call him do you know how many times I've said Bloomfield to him? Good God Almighty. Everyone does. Everyone does. <laughs> but it's okay. Peyton, we love you. <laughs> okay. But there we are. So, huzzah. So, Sarah Greer is here to talk about some personal experiences and how to advocate through trials and tribulations because grad school can't equip you for that no matter where you go. Your CF year is going to kick your butt. And if you think otherwise, then hold tight, friend. (laughs) So, hi, Sergur. Thank you for coming on. (laughs) Hello. Oh, my gosh. It's such an honor. And I totally echo the full circle moment. I would totally be lying if I said this wasn't a career dream of mine. And Michelle (laughs) made it completely possible. So, I am so grateful just for my relationship with her, with Erin, literally two of the best people on the planet. But yeah, as she said, I'm Sarah Greer, double name from the South. Michelle had to get used to that as well. (laughs) I did. (laughs) Um, Yes. So I'm 26. I'm originally from Chester, South Carolina, but I currently reside in Columbia with my husband, Peyton. I am now currently a home health EISLP, working with that birth to three population. I love all things speech, feeding, AAC, basically every single thing that Michelle talks about, I obsess over as well. But yeah, I did my CF in a private practice setting. I was seeing the pediatric population, but it was birth to 18. So much kind of different pace. But yeah. Perfect. Okay. So then take us from the beginning. What made you want to be a speech pathologist? Because that's what, I mean, everybody wants to know the good backstory. (laughs) For sure. So for me, I grew up, I have a cousin who has Down syndrome and he was always just like the apple of my eye. I still, to this day, I love him. I check in on him all the time. He is, gosh, I might be totally wrong, but I think he's like pushing 30 now. But he, we grew up together and I just always admired his outlook on life, the way that he, I don't know, he's always just so happy. And to me, that was something that I knew I wanted to be inspired by. That is what kind of brought me into this picture. And, you know, I went to Presbyterian in Clinton, South Carolina for college or for undergrad and I majored in psychology. I loved it, but I wasn't totally sure from there exactly what I wanted to do with that. And then it just kind of hit me. Like I had, so I was talking with someone and I was like, maybe occupational therapy. And then I was like, oh no, speech is, it covers pretty much everything that I was inspired by and want to continue helping others with, because I knew that, you know, Chandler had received speech and so many other therapies and early intervention. And it just kind of spoke to me, but yeah. I just adore him. And I knew that I wanted to help people that have helped him. So 
I love everybody's backstory because like nine times out of 10, we knew a body who was either a therapist or received services. Mine was Efi, like my little brother. He was born with a cleft and then my stepmom got electrocuted when she was pregnant with him. She was changing the toggle switch on the the outlets and got electrocuted. And they think that's why he had dysarthria. It wasn't apraxia. It was was dysarthria. So he went to speech therapy. (sighs) God, he didn't talk till he was four and then went to speech therapy because he would always say Efi instead of Ethan. And to this day, the man is 30. We still call him Efi instead of Ethan. Yeah. But like, I love that we all have that or, and then every once in a while, we'll get the wild SLP. Like I didn't have a clue. It looked cool on paper. So I took a class and I was hooked and I'm like, that's amazing. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Okay. So uh, squirrel advocacy. Number one, if you are not currently taking a grad student, I do ask that maybe reach out to your local high school and just spread the word of like, Hey, we're a profession and we exist because that would be kind of a cool way to start. Okay. We have a lot of ground to cover. Now I am intimately aware of Sarah Greer's walk and journey, like the last year and a half, two years of her life as she was going through her CF, which was like doubly complicated because girl was also planning this amazing wedding concurrence. Like that happened as well. But her story and the complications she encountered and the challenges she faced are not unique just to her. And I have had other dear friends that I have mentored through their CF that have had similar challenges. And that's just it. If we see a trend in complications, then we really do need to put forth skills and strategies so that if you're in your CF or if you're a supervisor that's mentoring somebody in their CF, you're prepped and you're ready. You know how to help or prevent or mitigate, right? Yes. 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 Okay. So when you started out your CF, can you take me back to what were you looking for? And then we can kind of go into like, what were like your strategies, but what were you looking for in a CF? I kind of, in grad school, I feel like in grad school, we kind of get this set thing in our brain of like what setting we like. We do the externships. We kind of feel out each setting like, ooh, I really, I don't want to do a sniff, but I love, love, love private practice when I did an externship. So it's kind of like, that's what you stick with. So I knew starting out, that's what I wanted. I really liked the pace, whatever I had the experience to observe and everything in grad school. I love the pace of private practice. It just kind of stuck with me. But I knew I wanted an atmosphere that was just, it was full of life. Like I really, really wanted that because our patients deserve that. And we have to bring in strategies and bring in ways that, you know, as therapists, that has to happen in order for it to be successful. I wanted an opportunity where I could wear a tutu. That was, (laughs) that sounds ridiculous. But like when you say zest and full of life, I want to be able to dress up and be silly and have fun because life is short, man. Wear a tutu. (laughs) Exactly. I, I knew and starting out too. And I think, I don't really know if every CF or, you know, CFs currently think the same way that I did, but I knew I kind of wanted, because I wanted a private practice, I wanted a little bit of a diverse caseload. Whereas now I have a very set population, but starting out, I kind of wanted to see a little bit of everything because I feel like that well equips you for things that you'll do later. 
that's that was so important. Yeah, you you hit a key note, and that is after grad school, CFs are excellent at it's a generalist. Like that's that's literally what grad school equips you for is to be a generalist, unless unless you have a practicum or practicums that are like hyper focused in one area. If that makes sense. I know our friend Annalisa had a practicum that she did chronic cough for an entire semester. That is voice and chronic cough. That is not my thing, but like she had, so she had advanced that gave her like a heads up in that one subset. Cause like what 0.1% of the SLPs actually treat that, but you hit it on the head. Yes. Continue. Sorry. I got excited. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, I just, I was seeking after grad school, I feel like the hustle and bustle of that. Luckily, I was so grateful to have the experience that I did with Erin. And honestly, I kind of carried her energy with me and I knew that I wanted that type of energy. And like she instilled so much in me that I knew I wanted to bring into my practice. Wait time, Erin, I know you're going to listen to this, but she just taught me the importance of wait time because I was so, that was such a challenge for me. It's just little things that you and her like instilled in me, excuse me. I was like hungry for that. I wanted the passion. I wanted to feel the passion in the environment that I was in. I wanted to learn more about Chandler, my cousin. I wanted to learn more about Down syndrome and how to treat them better. They have high palates, so they're going to have voicing issues and everything else in the world. Like I wanted to really, really learn the ins and outs, you know, have time at lunch to sit and talk. What's your patient doing this week? What gain have they made? What's something that kind of was a challenge for you? How did you overcome it? I just wanted all of those different experiences and like rounding. Yes, rounding. That's that's right. huge. What she's talking about, Erin's company that she works at is really great at doing like grand rounds and they even do like journal clubs at work. Yes. And I love that. That's what I was talking about. Like they would sit and talk about the caseload and, you know, just challenges, great high points of their day, low points of their day, stuff like that. And I just loved that concept. Yeah. We do low point, high point at the end of the day before bedtime prayers with the boys. It's very insightful if you ask an eight-year-old, what was your low point today? Or if you ask the 10-year-old, what was your high point today? Because oh, guarantee yeah. you're going to have a fart or poop joke inserted somewhere <laughs> in one of those. Right. Um, but you were able to clearly articulate going into your CF what it is that you wanted. And I feel like that's a huge huge component of being able to seek out and when you're interviewing for your CF. Folks, on that note, just because it's your CF, when you're interviewing, you get to interview them back. Yes. That's exactly what I was going to say. You know, I feel like you just kind of bring, I mean, your personality shines through, right? You know, if you're in an interview, it's, if you're passionate about it, which clearly I am, I wouldn't be in this field if I'm not, but I feel like you can see that. And honestly, just from the words you say and how you interview, I think it shows what you want in a job and with the people around you. So not just the job itself, but who you work with. The whole shebang. <laughs> yes. Okay. So one of my girlfriends went on interviews and I'll never forget this. She went on interviews for the purpose of practicing interview strategies. And I was like, run that by me one more time. And she was like, I get nervous when I interview. She's like, so I applied for jobs that I knew that I could probably, she would get the interview, but she probably wouldn't get the job. So she'd have the opportunity to practice interviewing. Now, I have social anxiety. I could not do that. That would be like my worst nightmare. But for her, 
that helped her overcome her, you know what it made me think of? Have you like, remember I'm old fear factor where like, you're afraid of spiders. So what do they do? They lock you in a chamber yeah. with spiders. Nope. Fellow arachnophobia. Can't do it. Yeah. Not, not happening. <laughs> This this is where Bear chimes in and starts giggling in the background. Oh, yeah. But like that was her process prepping her for her CF for when she applied for the jobs that she really wanted. She had done all these like practice interviews that were like legit and real. So there's that. Okay. So let's say you've gone through your practice interviews. You have secured the opportunity that you want. Can you take us through what did you find were three pertinent components to getting there into your CF? Yes. So number one, luckily for me, I checked the boxes on that. Solid mentors. That is so crucial. I think, you know, if you have someone in grad school, a professor that you just really, really clicked with, another SLP that was like family to you, hold on to them. Because if you trust them, you value their opinion, you value their practice, you value the things that they do for their patients. That's key to me. Second thing is definitely, and Michelle briefly touched on this in the beginning, but education on the entire CF process. And when I say education on the entire process, I mean, looking on ASHA, because it's obviously your most important resource, requirements, hours needed, for your state licensure versus ASHA, because those are different. Two different things. Yep, two different things. So just the CEUs that you need, again, different. Those are different requirements. And then one thing that is so important that I look back on now and I'm like, wow, is the role of you as a CF versus the role of your CF supervisor. And that is all laid out for you on ASHA, but it is so important to look at because I think that a lot of people's eyes will be like, wow, that's a thing. (laughs) I mean, it is just, it can be something so small. And then one thing that I found, and I think a lot of SLPs, especially new SLPs can relate, is the importance of ICD and CPT codes. Ah, It is just, again, I can only speak from my experience, but a lot of times it's passed over. Now, when Michelle came into the picture for me for grad school, obviously I learned Every single one basically kind of memorized the book. <laughs> but no, it again, all seriousness, it is so important because it is your every day as a therapist. Every session, she's over here cracking up. <laughs> I'm, I'm dying laughing because literally every single grad student I've ever taken, they come to me and they're like, what's a CPT code? I'm like, this is how you bill. This is Medicaid fraud if you don't know your CPT codes. Or like, yeah. what's an ICD-10 code? I'm like, this is what you have to diagnose and you have to know how a list backwards. So folks, I am assuming that a lot of us are not taught this. ICD-10 codes are the international classification of disorder or disease. There's a D, but you diagnose and you triage backwards. So say your patient's coming to you and they have autism spectrum disorder, but you don't treat the autism. You treat the neurogenic communication disorder. So you code R41.8401, which is neuro-based language disorder, right? Then you drop the ICD-10 code for autism. Or if it's dysphagia, R1312, it's oropharyngeal dysphagia with R63.32, which is chronic pediatric feeding disorder. And then you code the underlying disease or disorder that got you there. If that was a stroke, if that was, I don't know, gastroparesis, if that was whatever the etiology is. But 
I will never forget when we first started those conversations at FMU, everybody looked at me like I had 14 heads. I'm like, mm-hmm. you have to know yeah. these, but you didn't commit fraud. So huzzah. Amen. <laughs> I mean, I still remember the very first time that I met you was whenever I was a prereq student at FMU and you came and talked about PFD and you pulled those up and I was like, what is this? <laughs> This is a book of God knows how many pages that I, I'm like, I have to know this. So, but now we're good. I know how to build correctly. Thanks to Michelle, but yes, it is so important y'all. And it truly, if you're a new CF or, you know, you're in grad school and you're listening to this, I highly encourage you to pull it up. I mean, it's on there. It's so, yes, it's, it's your everyday. I have it saved on my S on my drive. It is readily available on my Mm -hmm. desktop because you never know what etiology you're going to see. And it's so important to know how to build correctly. I just cannot stress that enough. Okay. So my thought process is, and I know this didn't occur to you, but I have had other students in the past that when they entered their CF, they found out after the fact that individuals were going in and editing their documentation and changing their CPT codes. If your supervisor is changing your CPT codes or what you build for in your session without your knowledge and without your consent, this is ethical violations. What she's saying is accurate. You have to know you can find your CPT codes on the ASHA Superbill, but also you need to know how to look on your state CMS manual because just because it's approved on the ASHA Super Bill, like here in South Carolina, we don't have in all settings at the time of this recording access to all CPT codes. Like our state early intervention system still doesn't allow us to bill for an AAC evaluation. However, we can utilize AAC in treatment because that makes for King's Nuts, something we're advocating for. But you got to know this going in. And if you don't, Ultimately, that is also your CF license. Yeah. One thing I'll add to that I think is so important, especially if you are a soon-to-be CF or current CF who likes feeding or is interested in feeding, is for me going into it, obviously, again, I was lucky to have you, but just knowing how to build feeding with speech appropriately and ethically is, you have no idea when you're a new CF, unless you're taught that. Again, when you know better, you do better. But that's one of your sayings. I know. That's Aaron, dude. But yeah, I was like, yes, there's an Aaron there. Yeah. Yep, there's an Aaron. Yep. Aaron. Yep. I know that she'll listen to this and be like, oh, I'm so proud. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Yeah. Now, when you talk about mentorship in your day to day, and I'm aware today's episode is advocacy. Yes. Yes. It's advocacy because. Right. Sarah Greer came from not a swell place for her CF. We'll just roll with that. So when you were there and you were in the moment, how did you seek out mentorship from colleagues there when you didn't always feel supported otherwise? Um, so I am very, I'm lucky in the sense that I had some excellent coworkers. One of my very, very dear friends and still is, she had worked in early intervention, which is currently what I'm doing. And then she had transitioned there. So we were there at the same time. She's like my mom's age. She's like one of my best friends, but she knew a lot about just that population alone. So like when I would have an evaluation, I'd be like, 
not too sure exactly, should I give this assessment or this one, which one's going to be better? She would always give me great handouts and stuff. And I just valued that. Like it was a sidebar conversation, which led to, oh, here's a great resource. I think you should use this. Or, oh, here's a questionnaire that I find really helpful when you're unable to complete a standardized assessment. And I feel like that was such a good way to find support whenever I felt like I was kind of like, "Mm, I don't know what to do. When all else failed, I would just ask you or Aaron. (laughs) Because I mean, you know, you trust who you trust. And I found those relationships in people during my CF and still have excellent relationships, still talk with people who even don't work there anymore now. And it's just, you know, it's so great to keep up that rapport because they're in different walks of life now too. They have different jobs or they've started their own company. You know, it's just, it's so important to still maintain and keep a rapport, especially when everyone is in so many different settings because you get so much more insight that way. And I feel like you just, you learn so much better whenever you keep up the diverse nature of your own practice that way. Yes. But you were willing to ask the question. Right. And that's what a lot of people We don't, on this side of it, on this side where we act as supervisors, when y'all, when students, when CFs, hell, when colleagues ask questions, if we don't know it, we should be willing to say, I don't know, and then seek to kind of go from there to equip with the correct answers or send you somewhere. But it's the Something that I have found, and I don't know if this is generational or if this is just me getting older, but more and more people are afraid to ask the question. Yes. That's one thing I was going to stress today is I think I will be totally transparent with you in saying that, of course, there were times when I was a CF where I was like, "Mm, should I ask that? I probably should know that. Please don't make the same mistake I did because there were times, like Michelle said, I asked a ton of questions and I spoke up a lot of the time answer or no answer, you're still doing everything you can do. You've got the control to ask the questions. That's what's so important. And yes, completely echo what you say in terms of, I don't know that answer, but I know someone who does. I can help you. But that's how you became so intimately aware with the ASHA CF page, where they talk about the roles and response. And and literally, ASHA has a page dedicated to roles and responsibilities of the clinical fellow versus the clinical fellow supervisor. And down to, which they did not have when I was there because my CF supervisor came in and sold me Mary Kay. And before she signed off on my paper documents, because I'm old people, I am old. Old, fabulous. I will be 40 and fabulous in just shy of two months. Kazam, March 10th. But before she'd sign off on it, she would hand me the Mary Kay booklet and I would make my order and then she would sign my documents. And, like, you know, again, I, love it. I don't like Mary Kay, <laughs> but, but okay. But right. okay. So when you ran into hiccups, mm-hmm. how did you start? advocating with grace because that's, and you talked on something else a minute ago where our field is small and you have to maintain professionalism and build professional rapport. And when you have a graduate or state where there's only three grad programs, like that makes it even, yes, we all know everybody in their dirty laundry. (laughs) So South Carolina is a lot smaller than you think, especially in the SLP world. Yes. How did you learn to advocate? So I think that advocacy is something that I think it's a twofold. You have the mentors who teach you to uh, instill that in yourself. With that comes a passion. Like I have this internal passion for the field, 
which it just comes, I feel like natural in a sense to me because I am such a passionate person. And I think that, you know, you have to establish boundaries. That is one thing. The boundary, I'm not good. And my husband will tell you the same thing. At that point in my life during my CF, I was not good with separating work and home. I would get home and I would just be in the worst mood. And then I would, I'd be like, I have to wake up and do it all over again. Like it was not a positive, I wasn't in a great state of mind. And so the advocacy, you know, you get a little fire under your tail and you're like, okay, something's got to change. And for me, it was one of those things where if you as a CF feel overwhelmed, speak up about it. You have the tools and the power and the knowledge. Like you went to grad school and you worked really freaking hard for that. You deserve to advocate for yourself when you feel like you have too much on your plate. And that could be caseload. That could be yes. work. And for load. me, that was the case. It was the, it was the caseload because that is one thing that it's so, I don't want to say easy to get overwhelmed. I feel like that's not really doing it justice, but it's easy to fall into a pattern, I guess I could say of, mm-hmm. oh, here's the Tuesday. We have all of this today. And then it just builds and builds and builds. And then you kind of implode. Documentation time for me during my CF was one thing, and I think this is another point that I want to stress to listeners, is documentation is so serious, and Mm -hmm. if you don't have time to write the things and articulate things that you did in a session in a note, essentially the note's not really viable. I mean, at least in my eyes, I write a lot in my notes, and that's just me because I want to justify what I did. Now, do I take a little bit more time than I should for a note? Probably. But everyone does things differently. And that was one thing that I felt like I advocated for for myself. And I, in return, it was kind of a feeling of maybe shorten your notes a little bit. And it wasn't ever like a sound resolution, I guess I could say. No, that's perfect. This is the catch. When you are on the pushing 40 side, you've probably written soap notes and plan of cares for an extended period of time. And When you're this far removed from that CF moment, it is easy as the supervisor to forget how long it takes to write those notes. Your CF year, you have a built-in year so that you can fine-tune and tweak what you learned in grad school. That's its purpose. It's basically a residency. So as a supervisor, we should never assume that a CF is fully equipped to be able to write a soap note in five minutes and have it meet muster according to insurance and guidelines, because it's, it's not going to. And when you are working with complex patients, and just like you said earlier, and you have to be able to know how to utilize the CPT codes for AAC and feeding and language all within one session, your documentation must justify the quantity of CPT codes that you're dropping. And that takes time to write a skilled note. And it takes time to grow that skill set so that you have a set rhythm and you have a rate. It's plan of care time. Full disclosure, Sarah Greer and I work for the same company and absolutely <laughs> love it. Don and Lori, you're amazing. But I take forever to write a plan of care. I've been doing this this long. A plan of care still takes me a solid 30 minutes to write. But I have to document everything that's happened within the social medical component and then the progress that they've made for feeding language because their social medical components, like I had one family who the mother had a miscarriage. I had another family who just bought a house. And in three months, those are huge changes on a family that directly impacts 
their ability to implement a home exercise program or carryover strategies. And I'm going to include that in my notes, especially if there was like a medical setback for a child. But your documentation time in your CF year, you should be able to advocate and justify, I need additional time in order to provide the best services for the patients that I am seeing. Amen. And, you know, while that direct, obviously, not only is it a requirement during CF year for that direct contact time with a patient, yes, that's vital, but you also have to have time to justify things in your note, just like we said. I mean, it's crucial. And I mean, that's just the legality of our job is justification in, in that sense. And again, just echoing back, you know, feeding, because, you know, I was with Erin, did some picky feeding therapy in my final externship with her. And, you know, writing a feeding note, it takes a little bit longer than a regular speech and language note, because, you know, you've got to write the consistency, what they consumed, was their aspiration, was there not just, there's so much more ground to cover with a feeding note. I will say I had a relatively good amount of feeding kiddos my CF year. And I love that because that was a growing experience for me just to help me now. But again, it's, it's so so crucial. So when you're looking at your CF, The CF experience, and this is directly from asha.org backslash certification backslash clinical hyphen fellowship backslash. When you're looking at the CF, the CF is a minimum of 1,260 hours and a minimum of 36 weeks full time. However, you can do this part time. You don't have to get it in those nine months and you're done, right? right? So if you need more time, you can space that out. And I think, yeah, four years, 48 months from the date of your first Mm -hmm. CF. I know SLPs that got pregnant during their CF and they had to like put their CF on hiatus because they had a baby and this is amazing. But that component is approved. So if you need more than those 36 weeks, because instead of seeing 35 hours full time of patient contact, you need 30 so that you can dedicate to quality documentation or quality mentorship or observing other clinicians because maybe you got hired a setting where you didn't have feeding experience, but you want to move into that. You need time built into your schedule to observe that, to start engaging. I mean, that's, you got grace here, people. You don't have to get it done in nine months. Exactly. And I was just thinking, you just triggered a thought that I definitely wanted to hone in on was you're a person before you're a speech therapist. Yes. Amen. And I'll be honest with you. It's so, like I said, it's easy to get caught up in the day to day. There are certain things that, yes, your job is so important. And yes, your CF is so valuable to you because you've worked so hard for this. But at the end of the day, there's family. You've got things that are so valuable to you that it's so easy to put on the back burner. And I'd be say, I'd be lying if I said I didn't do that for quite some time because of how stressed I was. And another thing that I've come to just value so much is how important mental health is. It's just such a factor that in my CF, I was not at a good place. I had to really reevaluate and say, you know, what can I do to make this better for myself? Because if you're not in a good headspace with your own self, how are you going to treat the people around you, much less your patients? Mm -hmm. That was one thing that I definitely had to sit back and think about. And again, kind of how can I help myself in this situation? And that just goes back to advocacy. I mean, truly, it's just speaking up for yourself, getting a little fire under your tail and saying, you know, it's this or that. 
It's this or that. Truly, it is. It's uh, all or nothing. <laughs> when, when you say get a little fire under your tail, I'm like, that is the Southern turn of phrases that I just, I love that just cracked me up. But yes, mental health and everything that happens outside of your work hours, that will trickle over. Yes. And that goes both ways. But this mommy did her CF while going through probably one of the deepest valleys of her life. And my oh my, did it trickle over. I would not have been successful had it not been for the other individuals outside of the realm of speech pathologists that became my mentors. My rehab director, the hospital chaplain, who was also the hospital security guard, which worked out really well when safety orders were issued. Right. So why? Yes. 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 <laughs> what what a unique CF that was. <laughs> but I like how I'm code switching while somebody's playing on an iPad and dealing Love with boogers. That. But I say all this because there are requirements on the mentorship side that are official. As a CF mentor, you have to confirm that, and this is a direct quote, that a minimum of six hours of on-site and in-person direct supervision and six hours of indirect supervision activities will occur during each third of the CF experience, okay? So if you break your CF down into trimesters, right? For It's basically built around the school's schedule, but that means you're there. You're one-to-one with that CF, mentoring them and walking through that. And I am so glad to see that that regulation is adhered to now because that is built to set y'all for success so we can touch base on how is your burnout? How is your mental health? What strategies do you need aside from like additional documentation time? Do you need help with, I don't know. It's the crucial conversations and considerations that make a world of difference. Yes. In that experience. Having, you know, said everything previously, it goes back to you've got to be at a good mindset and happy and joyful and look forward to things to have the most optimal therapeutic presence because our patients deserve that. That's something, again, I learned that from you and Aaron, and it's just all things aside that have happened to you in that day, you put it aside for that hour because that child needs you. Yes. And again, it's just something that has to occur for, I think, for a session to just have optimal success and for you to feel like, wow, I really served this child or this adult today. Mm-hmm. So therapeutic presence is how you use your full self And that starts the moment a child lays eyes on you to Mm -hmm. the moment that you walk out the door, whether that be in home health, they can see me when I get out of my car, right? They can see me when I'm pulling up. Do I have my game face on, for lack of a better phrase? If you work in a clinic and they walk into the clinic, how did they walk in willingly? I mean, Erin's told stories of how she's had to go out to the car to get a child out of the car because they had a bad morning at their half day program and they are coming in with a fresh trauma. And I'm not talking like big trauma, but just maybe somebody took their favorite fruit punch, but they're having a hard time working through that moment. And that was an event that is heavy on their heart, right? Your therapeutic presence is how you use the rhythm, rate, tone of your voice, your facial expressions, your gestures, your energy, your muchness. Mm -hmm. And if you're overwhelmed, stressed, anxious, depressed, 
if you are not there because maybe somebody in your family has cancer. Maybe you're going through a grief cycle. Maybe you're worried about making rent. Those are real conversations that have to be held and had. And when you're in a CF, you have the opportunity to build not just mentorship, but friendship with these people. Yes. That's hard, right? Like that is. Yeah. yeah. I think that one thing that I valued a lot in my CF was, you know, the opportunity. I love co-treating. Co-treating is like one of my favorite things because not only are you seeing, and just for new listeners, from my experience, you get to see the side of, oh, well, while I treat the speech and language deficits, the OT is going to address fine motor skills and, you know, zipping a jacket because that's a goal that mom really wants to have for him. It's just, it's so valuable to like see all of the pieces come together. And some of the relationships that I built there just with, you know, OTs and PTs, I will cherish because you learn so much from them. And that's one thing I think to not let pass you by. And very important point that I ran into a lot is if a child needs a co-treat, please advocate for that because there are children who are not appropriate for a single session due to, and I, I say this, this might be more of a personal opinion, but I run into this a lot now with my current job is, you know, there are children who they might have sensory needs that have to be met. And I think that that is so crucial in regulation. Erin taught me a lot about regulation and with working with the OT there, AIDL with her as well, is you learn that there has to be regulation before there's essentially a connection. And connection is crucial to language Mm -hmm. because you have to find, it's just like a hierarchy, truly, in my mind, you know, that has to be there in order for there to be that language and emotional connection because they have to feel safe and they have to feel regulated before the language is going to be present. I loved kind of thinking that out in my mind. And I just think it's so applicable to every day. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. If you are in a position where you have a child on your caseload, but you don't have a say in their frequency, their setting, the duration of the session, that's not serving the child to the best of their abilities. I may go into a session and yes, I'm engaging in caregiver coaching, but if the caregiver, I've literally walked into a speech therapy session before. Well, I couldn't walk in. I was standing outside knocking on the trailer door and I was like, and I could hear screaming and crying inside. And I'm like, what the bloody blazes is going on in there? And all of a sudden I heard the dad yell, Michelle, I need help. And I'm like, what is going on? I walk in and the child had gotten the base, you know, like the tea pitchers and how they have the stands. The kid had gotten the base stuck around his neck like a dog shame of cone shame of cone cone of shame words are hard but like the kid had it stuck on his head and i was like you got to be freaking kidding me and he was like i can't get it out i don't know and of course like mom is always home but mom had gone for a doctor's appointment or something so like the mom was out so the dad had crisco all around this kid's neck and was trying to get the cone of shame off this kid and it was like the base of the tea pitcher right shame of cone (laughs) shame of cone that's now sticking 
am I going to do speech therapy in that moment? No, we had to figure out like, I mean, there was no billable service rendered that day. Now, thank God I was my like own private practice owner and could handle this. But these are real life circumstances that if you are being held to a productivity standard, you know, you got to be able to justify why services are not rendered, or you have to be able to justify that the patient and the care, that was an extreme true, but extreme story. But sometimes you walk in and the caregivers worked an all-nighter, like a nursing shift, and they're exhausted and they are not present for a session. And the kid's going to pick up on that and your hour's done. You're not going to make it an hour. You might not make it 30 minutes. But knowing as a CF when to say, okay, the session's concluded. We're done. Yes. That was a challenge for me was it's difficult to find, this is my clinical judgment. This is what I'm sticking with. Whenever you feel so fresh and new, because you're like, I'm a new clinician. Like, do I really have a say in like, this kid's only appropriate for 30 minutes. And a lot of children are that way. It's just, Mm -hmm. and it is what it is. If they're appropriate for 30 minutes, they're appropriate for 30 minutes. Now, can they handle twice a week? If so, great. I'll see them twice a week for 30 minute sessions. But some children simply given the age or depending on their age, I should say, some of them just aren't appropriate for a full hour. And that's that's just that. Yeah. And that's fine. And it takes a while to get used to developing a judgment in that sense in which you're like, okay, I'm confident in my decision. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Yes. It takes a while to find the confidence to say, this is what I think, and this is what this child can handle. And that's it. Bottom line. That's the purpose of the CF. Yes. And that's advocacy for them and for yourself, because not only do you now have the confidence But you're standing up for your patient too, because you know that they can't handle that. And that's okay. Yes. Again, as a supervisor, it's our job to facilitate our CFs. Now, is this literally written in the ASHA guidelines? No. But on this side of it, it's our job to facilitate the professional growth, some emotional intelligence growth, the executive functioning growth of our clinical fellows. That's what those minimum of six hours of direct support. And do some people need more than that? Yes. And that's okay because some people need more handholding in the beginning, a little bit more guidance. And then by the end, they're good to go with that minimum quantitative numbers, right? Because they've got it and they, they've taken off. Now, are you going to have some CFs? The one that makes me nervous is when you have a CF that comes in that's not asking for help, that comes in and they think that they know it. Because my question is, have we as supervisors created a safe space to say, ask me the question? Right. And that is so crucial. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like let's sit down and talk. And even it's just something that really stood out to me is just, it's the effort. It's the, let's sit and chat for 15 minutes. Do you have any questions? That is one thing that, even if it was just a qu- like a random question about a patient, gaining more insight from that conversation was going to serve me compared to if I had just kept on going and missed out on that conversation. Mm-hmm. Again, it goes back to the whole effort and advocacy standpoint for yourself and knowing your worth. I think in general as a person comes into it a lot too. When you were going through the requirements for the clinical fellow, was there any specific requirement that stuck out to you that, and I say this because 
I mean, full disclosure, I was clinic coordinator for her grad program when she was in grad school. And Mm -hmm. it's really hard to equip students for their clinical fellowship because one, the regs do change. The regs changed in 2020. So you do have to be aware, especially if you have like a hiatus in your CF, the regs could change behind the scenes. And also state licensures vary. So where the grad program was, we had students coming in from North Carolina, which had different regulations than South Carolina. And then the regs changed because of the pandemic in North Carolina in the middle of all of 2020. Also on that note, Goose just got a game called Pandemic, and it was all about a world pandemic, but it was created in like 2007 or something like that, like way before. And I'm like, why are we playing Pandemic? We have lived Pandemic. Like we don't need to play the board game Pandemic, but like also it's really competitive and I love that game. So like, (laughs) huzzah. But as a clinical coordinator, it's our job to empower students without enabling And that's tricksy because we have to give students the resources and say, but it's up to you to go out and fulfill those requirements. It's up to you to go out and for you to research. So if you're in grad school or if you're in a clinical fellow and you feel like you got blindsided here and you're like, but I didn't know I had to do this, here's your heads up, compare state license to CF requirements. But was there any CF requirements that you were like, oh, wow, I need to pay more attention to this? One thing that really sticks out that I did do that was helpful, it's on Asha's website. It's under the, you know, if you literally search clinical fellowship, it will pop up. You just have to scroll down a bit. It's a clinical fellowship skills inventory. And I think that this really helps, you know, I'm pretty sure, I hope I'm saying it correctly, but quarterly, like how you said, it's kind of split into those different segments. Yes. Doing and going through this inventory, each of those segments to look at, and I'm going to look at it right now because I have it in front of me. It highlights your assessment skills, your treatment skills, your professional practice skills, and your interpersonal skills. And it basically, it's not necessarily a scoreboard, so to say, but it kind of highlights, you know, are you proficient in this? Are you going above? Or are you kind of at an average point? It just kind of helps you evaluate. And if I remember correctly, doing this, it kind of helped me see, okay, I've done a lot of assessments in this area and maybe not so much in this area, or I've done pretty good on this part of documentation, but I might need to kind of up my game a little bit on plan of care. That was very insightful to look at because you look at your progress as you go and you're like, wow, I was not so great at that when I started or time management in terms of this subject, but now I'm really good at it. And I've gained some interpersonal skills with caregiver coaching, just as an example. But it helps you highlight that. That was one thing that I love going through and kind of looking. And I still have it. And I'll look at it, you know, kind of where I was compared to where I am now. Another resource that, and this is not a requirement by any means, but a resource that I loved was the National NISLA. It's just like a blog and anyone can post in it and you can read about people's experiences and it covers so many topics. Just people, it's a blog, just typing about what they experienced that day, asking questions about CF. I think it's a great resource and it's very subjective. Like you're going to get the raw opinions and things that I think are very, very important to read about. That's another safe space. And that's key is having a safe space where we can ask questions and be vulnerable, right? That's something like, I don't know, I feel like that's just, our profession doesn't always encourage vulnerability. So I did have, you said one thing, one thing you were talking about caregiver coaching. Now, this is something that as clinical supervisors, 
we have to be prepped for. Our students, our CFs are coming to them with current evidence-based practice. We may maintain CEUs. We may maintain those requirements, but we have to be prepped and ready for the fact that our students are learning things and topics and details, treatments that were either just being researched when we were in grad school or just not heard of. And I say that because Caregiver coaching is one of those topics that has come up in the world of early intervention in peds. We were taught back in the day, we, myself, and the other older folks in the room, that it was direct service delivery across the age continuum, right? And what we now know is that it should be routines-based intervention caregiver coaching. I thought I knew what I was doing in early intervention, and then Dr. Francis Burns at Francis Marion University rewrote the script and flipped the narrative on me on why we need to do routines-based, but equipped me with the family-guided routines-based resource. You can find that FGRBI website online. But that was something that you and I both, we come back to the clinical world. Now we have the skill set and it's hard to establish buy-in, right? Caregiver coaching for me, again, I feel like having that innate sense of compassion and being in that good headspace comes along. You've got to be able to be of sound mind and body and in a good spot because you never know, you know, now, for example, with me doing home health, you in the same boat. I mean, you obviously much more experienced than I, but you've got to be able to listen to, you don't know what that family is going through and you don't know what they might vent to you about. You know, it's one of those things that you have got to be equipped to handle. You've got your own set of problems, but you, you're theirs for that hour. Yes. You belong to them for that hour and they deserve that. Yes. And when you're coaching them through language acquisition as part of their daily routines, you need to understand what that daily routine is. And that's hard. So if you're a clinical supervisor and I mean, I am a reformed clinician in the sense, like I'm a reformed chewy tube clinician. Keep my non-speech oral motor exercises to yourself. They do not. They can be chucked in a bucket, right? But if we're used to running a clinic such that the parent walks to the door and drops the two-year-old off and then they leave, you are a clinician, not a magician. That parent needs to be in the room the entire time and you should be coaching that patient, that caregiver, and how to do the strategies. And that's hard if you're coming into your CF with those advanced skills to advocate. Yeah. It's the not knowing, but having to figure out and then advocate for. It's that process. And that is why you've said it. But right now, I love my job because (laughs) I am... Not only seeing, I mean, it was just like this shift and it was kind of the I made it moment. Whenever you you walk into a home and they have this already appreciation for you, right? Because you're seeing their child and- Helping. Right. You're helping them. And, you know, I had a moment the other day that was, actually it was yesterday, just the sweetest, most game changer moment is the mom said, and you know, this this child is relatively nonverbal and he- on Halloween, went trick-or-treating around his neighborhood. And the mom said he walked up to the door and said, trick-or-treat. And she mm. said, I fell to my knees and started crying. Mm. And that's what it's about. It's one of those moments that it just kind of teaches you when you're in the home with them and you're able to see their routine. You're able to get the inside scoop rather than I get 15 minutes with you. You get the full experience. It's just a shift. It really yeah. is. Mm. 
I am so proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So final words of wisdom for somebody that's, if you're in your CF and you are unhappy, if you are heartbroken, if you are afraid, if you feel intimidated, and I'm not saying Sarah Greer felt these things. I'm just saying if you are listening and you are feeling these things, or if you're a CF supervisor and you are concerned that these feelings and emotions and frustrations are happening for your CF, you can change. Yes. You can leave your place of employment and transfer to a different place of employment in your CF. Now, do you need to confirm like the protocols that you have to do with your state license and with ASHA? Yes, but their websites, ASHA has a website for that. Your state licensing board has a website for that. Now, if you're a CF and this happened to me, I got put on emergency bed rest part of the way through one of, I was her CF supervisor for like six, seven weeks. And then I could not commit to those six direct contact hours because baby Theodore, who is currently snotty and giggly behind me, has off for the flu day seven, six. But (laughs) you can, there's paperwork on our end that we can transition to another clinician given those circumstances, right? Just know that if you're hearing this and you're like, I don't think I'm in a good headspace. I don't think this is a healthy location for me for my CF. There are other options. Okay, but final pearls of wisdom, like hope. Leave them with hope. So biggest takeaway, if I had to, if I'm talking to new or current CFs, it's definitely just, you know, it sounds simple, but it's so true. It's knowing your worth as a person and as a clinician. Mm -hmm. And again, I said before, you've worked so hard for this. Mm-hmm. And you've endured so many hours of externship, internship, classes, tests, leading you to now. Again, like Michelle said, if you feel like it is not a healthy environment for you or where you are going to challenge yourself and be better as a person and as a professional, then make a change. And it's okay to make that change. You do not have to feel trapped. Just to put it simply, the moment that I made that switch, the stars just aligned for me. I love early intervention now. Again, if you're listening and you're like, yeah, but now I think, you know, I really want to do this setting. Again, it's okay to switch. You know, you may have that mindset at the beginning, but getting through it and having hope and staying true to yourself and advocating for yourself is so crucial. I would say that's my little nugget of hope. (laughs) Advocate for yourself. Yes. It's so easily said, but when you're in the moment, I get nervous poos when I'm scared. (laughs) Me too. Trust me. I mean, it's, you know, approaching and having hard conversations, that is one thing that it will build your character. I go back to my very, very first tidbit of advice is having a solid mentor who can teach you to do those things. Because if you don't have that guidance, I mean, you've got to have it. It is so important. My tip of advice is if you're feeling these feelings, write them down. Mm-hmm. Write them down in a place, but then quantify it. Yes, this- I journaled a lot. Journaling yeah. for me was my, it was kind of like my out at night where I'd be like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going upstairs. I'm going to write about my day. It was very healing for me. Yes. If you want to take that information back to work to address it, write it down, but then quantify it. I feel this way. Okay, well, what made me feel this way? Okay, then how? And don't just take it in with, and you did a really good job of this. You quantified, but then you proposed solutions. Yes. And that's the raise the awareness within yourself 
quantify it, but then offer this, the resolution, potential resolutions so that it can be addressed. And if you do so diplomatically, and if you do so with a seeking to understand attitude, if it's falling on deaf ears, may I propose that that could be your sign? Yeah. You speak your piece, you do all you can do, what's in your control. And if it doesn't work out, so be it. Mm-hmm. Also, we know a really good company in Colombia that you can come work at. No bag of toys required in your trunk. No things plastic to vibrate your face required. All the AAC you could dream about. <laughs> Huzzah! <Amen. Love> <laughs> okay, folks, if you're listening, be sure to check First Bite out on Instagram. Also, um, Sarah Greer, now that she's doing this, has an amazing passion project that you do. What is your Instagram handle? Because this is also, I love this. This is part of your balance. So what is your balance here? Tell us about that. I've been doing, gosh, I hope I'm saying the year correctly. I want to say since around 2019, 2020, I got super into influencing I Have a Like to Know It page. It's essentially where you can compile all products into a post, obviously relevant to that photo, and they're all shoppable posts in one spot. It's at Sarah Greer Brumfield. It's quite long, but it's been such a good outing for me. Again, like Michelle said, it's my balance. I love to have the freedom to one day a week get off at 1 p.m. and spend the rest of my day doing that and monetizing off of it. It's great. It's it's just a great side hustle, but it's also so relaxing and I just enjoy it so much. It's one of my passions. I love fashion, but Michelle knows that. <laughs> yes, because I look at it, I'm like, ooh, that's awesome. I would never wear that. But I love it. And then I did buy one outfit. By now I have worn it by the time this airs at Asha. That was a satin slip dress with a fluffy sweater top. That have this this was a Sarah Greer inspired outfit that I still can't believe I purchased it because it has electric pink. I'm like playing with my hair in nervous energy right now. But no one she'll text me and be like, um, I love this. But why is it four hundred dollars? <laughs> I do text you that. I'm like, have they lost their mind? <laughs> I know. I'm one. I love highs and lows. Mixing highs and lows is just—it's my thing. I post a little bit of both. But yeah, Michelle, of course, will send me the one thing that's like four hundred bucks. She's like, I really want that. I want it, but why? What, what, can we find it at the Target? Is there a Target yes. option for this? Exactly, <laughs> and that's my job. I love finding you budget items. Yes. So shop the looks with the highs and the lows, which I don't know if you mean like cuts or prices, but shop the look. Kind of both. Okay. Kind of both, but more so prices. <laughs> At Sarah Greer Brumfield. Check us out on First Bite Podcast and have hope. Check the Nishla blog and enjoy. Remember your CF is to be enjoyed. So Sarah Greer, thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you. It is such an honor, truly. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. 
To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and Skisha. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye. 